Friends, we are moving along in our series of G, based on Jesus' letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor. He uh, revealed this, these letters to the Apostle John as he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. He says to deliver these letters to the messenger, the angelos, the angels of the church. Uh, whether those are spiritual beings that uh, are like guardian angels over these churches, there's many theories. I think the most common one, the way Greek was used at that time, is that the messengers would be the messengers of God's word. Perhaps the lead pastors that uh, episkopos, the word translated bishops, uh, pastors over all of the house churches and various churches in those cities. And we have uh, taken a journey from Patmos to Ephesus, from Ephesus to the great harbor city of Smyrna that was undergoing persecution, Ephesus that had held so strongly to the truth of God. They were bulletproof when it came to false teachers. They knew their Bibles, but they lost their love. And then we went north to Pergamum, the great capital city that was the center of so many pagan worship practices, the great altar to Zeus and the Asclepion with the serpent god as the god of healing, a great competitor of the early church as early Christianity was seen as a healing religion as well. And then we saw the, uh, the center for emperor worship the worship of Egyptian gods, to such an extent that Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. I know where you're at, where Satan lives. Well, we know the, the adversary, the devil, Satan, is active around the world, but he was a created being. And uh, we know that we do not, uh, our war is not against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual forces of evil today. And it continues to be that way. Well, from Pergamon, we will now turn south and start going down the great Roman roads that tied the commercial centers of the Roman Empire together. And today we're just going to travel through a place that is just like Troshu in a sense. Troshu, our, our motto, I, I wish I had taken a picture of the town sign for those of you who aren't with us here or are at a distance. Troshu's motto is the hub of a progressive community. You know, and it is a bit like a hub, three hills, is like that as well. Prairie towns often are. Not only do the people who live here take advantage of the services of this town, but through farm dealerships and, and pork processing plants, uh, world's greatest shoe store, whatever it may be, you know, we're a hub that reaches much further. Well, this city today, we're going to be in Thyatira, is much like that. And the Christians that Jesus is writing to are people like us. People not in a great time of persecution, people not in uh, a strategic giant city with one of the wonders of the world, just a hub town, a commercial town, a normal town. Thyatira is that kind of town. And yet, friends, we are going to find today that today's letter is the longest that Jesus writes to the churches. And some of the things he tells them are the hardest that any church hears. We often think the most negative letter is the church to Laodicea, the lukewarm church, and we'll be there in a couple of weeks. But Jesus is harder on the sin of the church of Thyatira than he is any other church. Part of that is that while many Christians are living for the Lord wonderfully, that the church as a whole had become corrupted by false teaching, false teachers, they were 
not just tolerant, but they were accepting of immoral practices from other religions and so forth. Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writing to, to the church in Corinth, another crossroads church. Corinth was one of the major crossroads of the ancient world. And the same thing was happening. People were, were just living and going along, not only going to church on Sunday, but the pagan temples on other days of the week. So, of course, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, or 2 Corinthians rather, 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that important passage about being unequally yoked. And I want to remind you of that found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, another name for the devil? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. We're the temple of the living God. Paul is very strict on that. Don't syncretize, don't mix the good news of the gospel and the truth of God's word with the practices of the unbelievers, their religions, their temples, their philosophy. Don't incorporate it into God's truth. Don't water it down. Don't give in. We often look at this passage, and pastoral speaking, especially pastoral counseling, people point that to what? Marriage. And how difficult it is for a believer, and how challenging it is for a believer to live a life to please God while being partnered in covenant with an unbeliever. This passage is not written primarily about Christian and unbeliever marriage. That's an example of the struggle we have if we're unequally yoked. It's talking about any partnership. And the primary partnership that we see in Corinth and, and uh, Thyatira being spoken of was business partnerships. Now, my family had a family business. They had partners over the years, especially in the early days in California. There were unions involved, unbelieving partners. There were lawsuits. And you know, people that when you're doing business or you're just in partnership with Christians, it's, it's just a little different. It has a different feeling to it. I'm not saying that you have to only work for believers because we all, it says, what do we have in common? Well, we live in the same world. We need to eat. We need to work. We have a lot of things in common, but those heart-level partnerships where you really need to be on the same page. The Apostle Paul says, be careful. What do you have in common with unbelievers? We don't often think of this too strictly, or maybe as much as we should, to really look at our connections. We need to be salt and light. We need to be in the community. Whatever the community loves and is involved in, the arboretum, the school, whatever, we need to be there shining the light of God's love and serving. But there's just certain things that we're different at. We don't we don't compromise on. As last week, we saw the church in Pergamum was a compromising church. And today, Thyatira, this church is the tolerant church. The tolerant church. 
And because of that, while some were holding strong, it was starting to fall apart. It was starting to decay. And Jesus approaches this tolerance to sin very strongly. Now, we all know that's one of the great clubs that the world, the media, the spirit of the age will use as a weapon against Christians. That you are what? You are intolerant. You are a bigot. You are this phobe, that phobe. You're intolerant. And I say guilty because I seek to be intolerant of sin. Boy, we're all a long way from getting there, but that's what we need to be intolerant. And I seek to hold on to the truth of God's Word. And a world, a postmodern world, that tells you there is no absolute truth, that your truth is different than my truth, I say, no, truth is truth. White is white, black is black, male is male, female is female. Common sense things like that will get you kicked offline or thrown in jail because you're intolerant. You're intolerant. And this, the tolerant church, comes in for greater condemnation from Jesus than any other church. Well, we want to be loving people. We want to be kind people. We want to be serving people. But we don't want to tolerate sin. We don't want to make it part of who we are or engage in the same practices and be unequally yoked with the unbelieving world around us. That's what we're talking about today. Of course, the letter begins, Jesus always reflecting on that glorious vision of the risen, glorious Lord on the Isle of Patmos as he addresses the letter to the church in Thyatira. Verse 8, Revelation chapter 2, or verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The only time that phrase, Son of God, is used in a revelation, it's used here. People wonder about that. One reason they think might be because Thyatira had a great temple of Apollo. Remember Zeus, the chief god, his great temple is up the road in Pergamum. Down the road, there was a great god in Thyatira. I, I, I was reading his name. He's got like a four or five long name. It's like, it's like Apollo, Zeuster. It goes on and on. They've, they combined a lot of the smaller pagan gods who predated the Greek Apollo. They added them to Apollo and worshiped him in Thyatira. Kind of a catch-all god. Very tolerant god. Stuck him all together. But the thing is, he was seen as the son of Zeus. He was the son of God. That's how they referred to him. And Jesus now writing to the Thyatira says, no, these are the words of the son of God. And his eyes show that he pierces lies. That he looks not at what your hands do, but what your heart and mind behind your actions reveal. Only Jesus, the righteous judge, can see that. Oh, and the burnished bronze, those are the feet that tread out the winepress of God's wrath. That burnished bronze feet also speak of Jesus as judge. And that's appropriate because this church full of wonderful, loving Christians comes in for harsh judgment today. 
Well, speaking of today, let's look at Thyatira today. We visited there one afternoon, and it was interesting. It was the afternoon we had been in Pergamum, and we wanted to see the ancient hospital and spend time there, the Asclepian, but the gypsies were battling with knives and sticks and stones, and we couldn't get to the Asclepian because all of the different factions of the garbage and rubbish collectors, the gypsies with their, clar- their, their, their horse-drawn carts, uh, they were battling it out. So he said, well, let's pop over to Thyatira, you know, and let this settle down. We'll come back a different time when uh, the police have restored peace. So we went down to Thyatira, and it's an interesting town. It's it's about, you know, maybe uh, it's, a, it's a good-sized town. It's about 100,000, the surrounding area, 160,000. It's called Akisar. I like that name, Akisar. Now, Akisar has been there for centuries. Nobody knew where Thyatira was. And then one day, about in the late 1600s, an archaeologist, an English archaeologist who'd been up in Pergamum, you know, he went to a place called uh, called Tira. And a lot of people said, this is ancient Thyatira. And, you know, he says, I don't know. We don't find any evidence that that's what this is. And he was traveling through the town of Akisar. And right in the middle of town, he saw Roman columns, inscriptions sticking out of the ground. And he brushed it off. And right there written was a dedication by a local businessman, so-and-so, of Thyatira. And he says, what in the world? We found it. We have found ancient Thyatira. Akisar is right on the main highway. It is such a manufacturing and farm processing, produce processing town. You know, you smell industry in the air. You know, it's a real going concern. Everybody, it's high employment. You know, it's just a busy, bustling town. Because Akisar is midway between the great port city of Izmir, Smyrna, and up north in Istanbul. You know, it's the road between those two. It's a busy town. Exactly like Thyatira, on the same ancient road was between Pergamum, Ephesus, and Smyrna. It's in the same place and serves the same thing. Here are some of the, here are some of the pro, or let's look at the map. Let's look at the map. There's, there's, see, we've, we've left Pergamum, the furthest north of the seven cities, and we're heading down towards Sardis. Now, where Sardis has some incredible, incredible ancient ruins to see, they're in Thyatira because it's a busy town. It's a working town. They didn't hang on to their history. They kind of just built over it, you know, and you don't see, many ruins at all in Thyatira. If you want to if you want to skip one of the seven cities, you skip Thyatira. You skip Philadelphia. The other cities have ancient enormous ruins exposed, but these two cities, Philadelphia and Thyatira, very little is seen today because it's a busy town sitting on top of it. In fact, here is the uh here is about what you see. This next slide shows. Oh, this is the this is what Thyatira is known for today. Akisar is where your cigarettes come from. Now, if you, like me, continue to smoke Turkish cigarettes, no, I don't, of course, but <laughs> look at the big warnings on them. Those are modern Turkish cigarettes, you know, and Akisars where the surrounding tobacco fields, this is like the North Carolina tobacco row of Turkey, and Turkey's known in the in the Eastern world as the major producer of cigarettes. Well, they the, they produce them and roll them and dry them, and you can smell the kilns uh, drying tobacco in the air. So tobacco is a big product of, of Akisar. But so are the olive orchards. You know, there's so many varieties of olives in Turkey, and olive and olive oil, 
Turkey and Greece always fight between number, they, they flip between number two and number three in the world for olive oil production. Number one is, is Italy. And uh, these two are always fighting out to be number two. And of course, there's some, there's some Turkish delight with all, almonds in it. And there's almonds there because Turkey is, is where much of the almonds and almost all of the hazelnuts in the world are grown. And many of them are processed there in Akisar as well. It's a modern producing town. But, uh, before that, before that, uh, we see, we see, uh, the excavations today. Basically, it's one square block in the middle of the city. This was the Roman, uh, not the forum, but it was a busy government area. It's a colonnaded street. We see the, 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 uh, columns with the arches along the side. So this is about all there is to see there. These were Roman era buildings. There's some inscriptions, but all of the interesting old bits to look at are often a museum elsewhere in town. But this is basically what you see. That takes in the whole area. It only takes a few minutes to walk through. One of the largest buildings is a Roman basilica about a hundred yards long. Look at this long building. There's my little friend Stephen. He's a, he's a wonderful Christian from Africa. He's a little guy, stands about yay tall. But, uh, and I think that's Pastor Lyle from McKernan down at the other end by his hat. But you see, because of the curved end of that building, that tells us it's a basilica. Now you say, well, that's a Catholic church. Before the basilica was a Catholic church, the basilica was the name of the Roman government building. The Catholic church, the early Roman church, took the same buildings over, and so their churches were the same shape as the ancient Roman basilicas. Now, this ancient Roman government building was eventually turned into an early Christian church as well. Akisar has many evidences of the early Christians. They would take... Uh, pagan uh, statuary and so forth, and repurpose it for the churches and carve crosses in it and so forth. Very interesting that they would do that. Now, among those columns, you see, this is just a nice picture of a Corinthian column. This is uh, a capital. You know, a Corinthian column is topped with that capital. That's upside down. You flip it up, and that sits on top of the column, and the building sits on top of that. The top part's the capital. The Corinthian capital has those leaves on it. It's the most ornately carved, has hycanthus leaves, just like from Egypt, or an olive tree, has these beautiful leaves. An Ionian column, that looks like an unrolled scroll, and a Doric column, that's blank. So you always know the three major columns, and it tells us about the time and the styles when something was built. You know, these meager excavations, you know, we were only there a little while, but what caught my attention I saw movement, and I'm following it. Here's what I found. A beautiful big tortoise right in the middle of town. Oh, when I was a kid in Oklahoma, we would pick up those tortoises off of the road in the summer so the hot southern sun wouldn't roast them as they would get out on the pavement, and they'd pull their legs in, and they would just sit there roasting or until a truck came over and put an end to them. We would pick them up and go and give them a home for the summer, turn them loose in the fall, and uh, you got to be careful because they can bite, you know. But here was a Turkish tortoise for your entertainment pleasure. That's <laughs> There he is, you know. He's living there, and I don't know how old he was. I would have brought him home, but don't think I could have got him through customs. Okay, that was Thyatira today. The name Tira means fortress. Thyar was one of the early Lydian gods because this ancient area was called Lydia. Now we know a Lydia. There's a Lydia in the Bible. 
Well, when Paul was in Philippi, he met a woman named Lydia of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple. Now, Thyatira, remember, they were not only an ancient producing area, but they produced purple dye, not made from the murex snail, the expensive royal dye down in the Mediterranean. You have to collect so many bazillion snails to make a little bit of purple dye. The Turks to this day make their purple dye from the matter root. The matter root natural color is like uh, orangey red, but with other dyes added to it, they can make purple, they can make black, indigo, rust, orange, uh, cranberry. They make all these beautiful colors for the Turkish carpets. And Thyatira was a center of producing purple dye. There was in Thyatira ancient guilds. These were like unions, but today you pay a union's fees and so forth. But the guilds, those were very protective, whatever they made. And we have on record Thyatira had guilds for everything from wool production, linen weaving, leather work, shoemaking, purple dye making, purple selling. They all had guilds. And these guilds, they met regularly in temples. That's where they had their guild meetings and kept their guild secrets. And their meetings were infamous. They were well attended because they always started with a feast. And you know, Roman feasts, those low tables, you reclined on couches on your left elbow and ate with your right hand. Because in the temples, especially those with a fertility aspect, the feast always ended with immorality. The feast moved into the Roman drunkenness and then into the orgy. That was your guild meeting. The problem is that the Christians living and working and coming to faith in these guilds, did you continue to be unequally yoked to that guild? Did you continue in that setting? Unfortunately, in Thyatira, many Christians were, but not everyone. Because Jesus has a wonderful commendation for the church in Thyatira. We see that pattern, address, commendation, accusation, admonition, and promise. Well, let's turn now to the first, commendation, loving service. That's what he is commending the church in Thyatira for. That you have Christians there, they do it right. They have faith. They have love. And it's expressed in service that doesn't give up. Perseverance. That's an amazing commendation. I love it. It's one of my favorite I find in these letters that Jesus wrote to the churches. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. This is showing growth as well. They were increasing in their faith and their love and their perseverance in the face of this pagan society. It's incredible. And you're doing more than you did at first. That's a wonderful commendation. If only it was true of all of the Christians in Thyatira. Because Jesus then has to move right into the, the accusation and the condemnation, which is longer than for any other church. And I believe it's because of that being unequally yoked, remaining in the pervasive guilds of Thyatira, 
to go along to get along, to keep your job, to keep your your status in society and your standing, to be thought well of. You went along with things and did things that you knew weren't pleasing to Christ. That's not just an ancient problem, friends. That's our problem today, too. And it worries me when I see how harsh the judgment of the Lord is on it. Because his accusation is, oh, you're tolerant, but you're tolerating sin. That's the accusation of Jesus. You're turning a blind eye to those practices that break your Lord and Savior's heart. You weren't saved to live a life like that. You were saved to be salt and light, to be a child of God, and to give hope to people around you as they see God lived out in your own life. That your words are more than just words, that your life backs it up. Jesus begins that passage by looking at Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. Jesus says, after all that good commendation, Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Where Ephesus was bulletproof to false teachers and false prophets, Thyatira had embraced one. Now, just as the previous letter, Jesus refers to the spirit of Balaam in the church. He's using well-known Old Testament characters to teach a principle. It's a metaphor for what is going on. In the same way, Jesus is characterizing, this woman's not named Jezebel, she's a Jezebel. She's walking in the footsteps of that notorious Old Testament character who took King Ahab who was willing, went into his sin willingly, but she urged him on and led him into grievous sin as a king in Israel. And what this sin is, Jesus hints that it involves immorality, eating meat sacrificed to idols. Jesus is describing the guild practices, the guild feasts, the drunkenness, the sexual licentiousness. Jesus is describing that Jezebel is teaching that this is fine. Christian on Sunday. Guild member the rest of the week. The Lord understands. This is the world we live in. Be tolerant. Don't be a bigot. Don't judge your neighbors. Love them. And this was a loving church. And so they had gone and felt that in their love for their unbelieving neighbors, that they had held on to that love and service, but it seems that they had let go of the truth. In some ways, they're just the opposite of Ephesus. Held on to the truth and lost their love. Then you have these Pharisaic legalists. But on the other end, you have these tolerant, loving people who have no truth to hold on to anymore. And what good is that? Two extremes, Ephesus and Thyatira. They're almost mirrors of one another. Well, of this Jezebel, let's just look at a few things to see what what the tenor of that is. Back in all the way back in First Kings, we see Jezebel married 
a non-Israelite married to a king of Israel. Speaking of his reign, King Ahab, we read in 1 Kings 16, 31, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal and he, that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made Asherah poles, did more to provoke Lord than the God of Israel, the anger that did all the kings of Israel before him. So the presence of that unbelieving wife, we say, what effect did she have? Well, in the stories, we see she's right there by his side. We know she comes to a bad end, pushed from a window, killed on the ground, eaten by dogs, all prophesied. But before that, in looking back to Ahab's reign, we see in 1 Kings chapter 21, it says, There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites that the Lord drove out before Israel. Going back to all the evil that had been before Israel came into the promised land, urged on by Jezebel. Well, the people were sinning, urged on by somebody telling them and probably proof texting it from Scripture because she was a prophetess. She was a false prophet. And they had embraced her. And Jesus says, no, and I've given her time to repent. She is hard-hearted in her sin, refusing to repent. And this is a person in the church. This is a leader of the church. She's the head of the women's group. You know, she's probably a big wheel in the church. Jesus continues his uh, condemnation of the behavior of the church in Thyatira. We see in verse 22, in the face of her unwillingness to repent, Jesus says he's going to take action. Verse 22 so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unless they repent of their ways, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now it's interesting the bed of suffering is using the same Greek language for the couches that were used in the temples and in the guild celebrations. Jesus says he's going to take that which was meant for pleasure and turn it into pain to remind them that this is the consequence of their actions. The suffering, the illness, who knows that it's not even connected to all that goes on in that adulterous practice. They will reap what they sow. How often God spares you and I as His children from the full force of our bad decisions. He does that by His grace. He allows us to experience suffering as a father disciplines his child, allows us to come to the point of repentance and be restored. But what happens when a church straws the line and says, no, sorry, Jesus, we like this. We're not giving it up. Well, Jesus says, for some of them, I will make an example, just as he had to with Ananias and Sapphira in the church in Jerusalem when they lied to the Holy Spirit and in the service said all of this money that they had given all from the proceeds of the land to the work of the Lord, and they lied to everyone's faces, and they dropped dead in their tracks. 
has said a great holy fear came over the church and they said, hey, this isn't just a human religion. This is the real true God that we're working with. This is not a tame religion. This is the true God. Now the words of Jesus reflect that. Reflect that seriousness. And that same seriousness in one of the most profound, frightening passages in Scripture. Because it speaks of what happens when God's people refuse to repent. Embrace sin. We see that in Hebrews chapter 10, speaking to Jewish believers in a similar situation. It says, in reflection, earlier in Hebrews, it speaks of people. The author says, if we keep deliberately sinning we've, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, this is what happens. A Christian who knows the truth and lets it go in favor of sin. The author says in verse 29 of Hebrews 10, how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Jesus presents himself to Thyatira with piercing eyes and burnished feet as a judge. He says, if I do this to them, then everyone will know I am him who searches the hearts, who knows the motivation behind their actions. And that, of course, is reflected and and basically quoting, Jesus is quoting the truth we find in Jeremiah 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Jesus, the perfect judge, knows the intent of the heart. There are good things that are done for the wrong reason. Do they receive reward? Sometimes they they deserve punishment. And only the righteous judge with the piercing eyes knows the difference. Well, that is the longest, hardest passage of any of the churches of Revelation. Well, but there's an admonition. There's a corrective. The Christians who are loving and persevering and serving, Jesus tells them in the midst of this, while some will be suffering and others repenting, To the others, he writes this in Revelation chapter 24, an admonition, he says, just hold on, cling to the cross, hang on to the truth, hang on. I love it when the Lord says that, hang on. I'm not done with you, hang on. Jesus' admonition to the believers in Thyatira is found in verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. Obviously, she says, I found some deep knowledge hidden in the Old Testament while we can sin. Jesus says, that's not deep knowledge. That's Satan's deep secrets. He says, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. Hang on. Persevere overcome. 
I'm not going to ask any more of you than what you're already doing, loving, faithful service. This is God's plan and goal for all of us. Hang on to it, he says. Don't let go. Don't join Jezebel and that bunch of sinful believers. Hold on. And then he makes reference to his return. This is the book of Revelation after all. It's all looking forward to the return of Jesus. And even in his letters, he says, keep your eye on the sky. Hang on till I return. Just as the Apostle Paul uh, writing to the church in uh, in Thessalonica, he encourages them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, hold on. For Paul says, even if we have loved ones who have died before us, they will not miss the return of Christ until he returns. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. That's what we all look forward to. Jesus says, hang on. I'll come back for you. Either at the moment of your physical death, I'll take you home to my Father's house, or I will return in the clouds with those who have gone before you. And you will meet the Lord in the air and be with Him forever. The blessed hope, it keeps us going. And it closes, as all the letters do, with a promise. The promise, interestingly, these people in the most nondescript town, the Troshu of ancient Asia Minor, (laughs) they are going to reign. Instead of being oppressed and ruled over, they are going to reign with Christ. That's the promise. Jesus Christus Imperator, Jesus reigning over all, Jesus Pantocrator, the great mosaics used to show Jesus as the king reigning. But the Christians behind him, we're seated on thrones. One of the great messages of the millennium, we say, well, why does God kind of do a reset for a thousand years late in the book of Revelation? Satan is bound for a thousand years, and we see from the New Jerusalem Jesus reigning as the king. But not only Jesus, all of his followers, rather than being oppressed and ruled over, with Christ we reign. Well, that thousand years shows how this world could have been if we'd never fallen, if we'd never put self before Christ, if we hadn't fallen into sin. That promise was revealed now in Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. Jesus says, To him who overcomes, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over nations. He rules them with an iron scepter. He will dash them like pieces of pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give Him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In this passage, Jesus quotes Psalm 2. In that passage, God speaking to this mysterious Christ figure, says this, He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. The nations will belong to Jesus. For a season, it seems Satan is the prince of this world. 
Remember at Jesus' temptation, He offered Him the nations of the world without suffering, without the cross. And Jesus rejected Him because He knew His Father had a plan that one day, not only would He reign over the nations, but He will have been the Savior and you and I will be there with Him. What a blessing. Just hang on. Friends, this is a challenging letter. But I see between those two extremes, Ephesus holding the truth, but losing their love. And Thyatira loving, caring people, but tolerating sin in their community and in their midst. Between them is where we need to live. I think it's summed up well in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, and I close with this. Paul prays for them. In verses 10 and 11, I'll start in verse 9, and we'll get there. In verses 10 to 11, that truth is revealed, that balance. Paul says, and this is my prayer, that you, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Your love may abound in knowledge. We hang on to the truth of God. Our distinctives remain our distinctive. We don't water down the gospel. We don't become a church where anything goes and whatever the latest fad and sin of society, whatever they promote in the media, we have to embrace in church to be thought to be one of the cool kids in the lunchroom. No, we're not like that. The truth is the truth. The old rugged cross, that amazing grace is true today and it's needed like never before. But we don't do it in a judgmental, in a holier-than-thou way, because our love for our lost family, friends, and neighbors grows and abounds more and more. And we speak the truth in love. We speak the truth respectfully. But we stand for what we stand for. We stand for the One who saved us and is the hope of a lost and hurting world. Hmm. Friends, let's close our time together with a word of prayer and ask God to lead us in this challenging balance that we seek in life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, our world needs believers today to be salt and light like it never has. Lord, there's a flood of lies and filth. This world is a world of information and most of it bad. Lord, help us to be people who hold to Your truth, the good news. But do it in a way, Lord, that is loving and accepting of sinners. Because this is what we all are apart from Christ. We're just sinners who have experienced grace. Lord, we bring nothing to our salvation but the sin that Jesus died for. We are saved by Your amazing grace. And Lord, that's the truth that people need to hear today. That's the light we need to shine in an age of confusion. Lord, I thank You for my brothers and sisters in Thyatira. Lord, many of them stumbled because they followed false teaching of a woman in the church. Her words seemed sweet. It allowed them to 
have their cake on Sunday and eat the things of the world the rest of the week. But Jesus says, no, He's jealous of His bride. He wants her pure and holy and dedicated to Him. And Lord, help us to be that. People who abound in Your knowledge and Your love. Our neighbors need it. Our families need it. This world needs it. Lord, bless us now as we go our separate ways until we gather this afternoon with our brothers and sisters who are walking that road as missionaries. Lord, make us light in our community. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you and keep you.